I'm uh, sure a lot of us can relate to an experience. This um, Courtney Ellis, Princeton grad student in English. Uh, I was reading this, and I thought I'd share it with you. She writes, when I attended graduate school for English, there were many occasions when my fellow students openly ridiculed the name of Christ. To my great detriment, I stayed silent. I was quite vocal about my belief in Christ at church and with my friends, but I was terrified of what might happen to my reputation if the people at my school found out that I believed in Jesus. Most of them were just ignorant about who Jesus is. Several of them had never even met a Christian before and assumed that all Christians were the uneducated, judgmental stereotypes we sometimes see in the media. And yet... I was still afraid. Well, as the program went on, I began to feel guiltier for these silences. And listen to what she's right. If I couldn't be obedient to Christ in such a central thing, how would I be able to serve him in other ways? God was faithful in my rocky road to obedience. Opportunities to speak up for Christ continued to come my way, and then it happened one day. A fellow student asked me flat out, right before class, when many other people around, if I was a Christian, I was at a crossroads. I had a clear decision to make. I took a deep breath, and with God's help, I said a soft, shaky, yes, okay. And the student looked at me for a second skeptically. And this is what this gal said. Interesting. I always thought that Christians were like circus freaks, but you're actually kind of smart. And for Courtney, it was a small step. You know, I'm sure we've all had opportunities to identify with Jesus, right? And all of a sudden, we had vocal cord paralysis. We all of a sudden went silent, right? Uh, Several weeks ago, I was uh, teaching a class up in Dallas, and I was staying with my host couple, and this lady was telling us at dinner of her experience at First day at the SMU campus years ago, first class was a Bible class. And on that first day, the instructor got up there and asked, does anybody in this class believe that the Bible is true? And all of a sudden, no hands went up except one gal, Sydney Ann, she put her hand up and said, you know, I actually, I believe it's true. And that professor tore into her. Uh, Jones told me it He made that gal look like the most awkward, uh, craziest individual that existed. And she said, you know, I I learned a lot from that experience. I I was deeply ashamed that I couldn't identify. I wanted to be more prepared. Now, the Lord's forgiven me, but I, I wanted to grow and to be more confident in my faith. How do you do that? How do you and I grow confident in our relationship with Christ? Well, if you remember last week, we looked at it in chapter 1, verse 8 in 2 Timothy. In the face of fear, Paul wrote these words to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. God's power working in you, but I'm inviting you, Timothy, join with me in suffering. And and notice this glorious gospel. Notice who we're united with. Verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. 
this Savior, this testimony of Jesus, Jesus has rescued us from our own sin. He's actually called us with a holy calling, setting us apart to himself, not according to our works. It's not your religious behavior. It's not your good deeds. But according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Do you see that? From all eternity, God has sovereignly selected and, and invited us to come and to be testimonies of his grace. And he says in verse 10, But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, man's greatest fear, to die. Christ has conquered death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Our greatest desire to, to live forever, to experience life with God, and it's been all supplied in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And for this reason... Look at verse 12. I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Why are you not ashamed, Timothy? For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. How do you and I come to a place to know Christ, to know whom we have believed, so that we can live lives without fear? That we have a confidence in Christ. You see, a willingness to suffer comes from seeing the worth of the Savior. And that's what you find there in verses 9 and 7, 9 and 10. This great and glorious value of Christ and to know Him. How do you and I, though, come to a place where we're simply not fearful? How do we grow confident in Christ? Well, you don't have to guess. All you have to do is keep reading. Verses 13 and 14 are so critically important. They tell us how you and I can build a life that is confident in Christ. What is the means by which God does that? And you're going to find that confidence in Christ comes from knowing God and His Word. Let's take a look at it in verse 13. If you're going to grow confident in Christ, you have to live out the Word. Look at verse 13. On the heels of verse 12 where he says, I know whom I have believed. I am convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. He says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He says, hold fast the standard. Uh, This word could be um, pattern or it's, it's a sketch or an outline to be imitated. So just like an architect might make an initial pattern and then he's going to fill in the details... Or like if an artist will actually put kind of like an initial sketch and then they're going to fill it in. Or like if you're going to write um, like a manuscript, you start with an outline. You've got a basis for it. You've got a pattern in which you're to build. What Paul says is you want to retain the standard. You want to hold fast the pattern. You build your life on the words that God has given us. And what happens is not only do we preserve the integrity of what God has given us, but God intends for us to model the truth in the life we live. Literally, we're to integrate our life with the Scripture. And I don't want you to miss this in verse 13. He says, Retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Faith and love are essential for the Word of God to have its effect in our life. And faith, which means taking God at His Word... And love, the ability to actually experience 
the choice to care and put another's interest before our own, all of this is a gift that we receive from Christ. You see, it's like this. God gives us his word. He also gives us faith and love. The two of them are intermingled. And what happens, it creates in us the ability to grow, to build our life upon the pattern, to live out the word, like he says in verse 13, to retain the standard of sound words. The importance of the Bible, of Scripture, cannot be underestimated when it comes to growing and maturing in the faith. If you want to be confident in Christ, it does not happen apart from God's Word being integrated in your life. This is so, such a central truth that in every chapter in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul references to Timothy the importance of integrating God's Word into your life and into your ministry. If you want to be a spiritual shepherd, you've got to help people grow in the Word. Chapter 4, he says, you even, you preach the Word, whether people want it or not, because there is no growth in Christ. There's no confidence in the Savior apart from the Word. And notice what he says, you retain the standard of sound words in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Instead of being kind of a dogmatic, got a chip on my shoulder looking for the next fight, theologically... We're to exemplify the characteristics of faith and love. The Word of God, through the working of the Spirit of God, starts conforming us to the image of Jesus. We demonstrate a faith. There's a loveliness about our life. And what happens is God uses the truth of His Word to shape us. It starts with our understanding, our, our comprehension. But it's from what we know as we are reading the Word and learning about God and truth, our understanding then starts shaping our convictions, what we really believe, our, our attitudes, our values. And you and I always live out what we believe. Your behavior can be explicitly tied to what you really believe. And what we believe is coming from the Word, and our behavior is changing under the working of the Spirit. Christ resides within our life. His heart resonates with truth, and he's bringing about the ability for us to do like the text says, to live out the word, to retain the standard of sound words. See, God wants his truth integrated with our life. But this is the problem. We are walking away from the truth. There is an Indian scholar, a Christian scholar named Vishal Mangawagi. I hope I got that right, right there. He's here today. Sorry, but I gave him my best shot. And Vishal Mangalwadi, he made this observation having come to America and toured it. And this is what he said, quote, Christianity lost America because 20th century evangelicalism branded itself as the party of faith. Listen to this. Secularism, science, university, media, became the party of truth. This is the one reason why 70% of Christian youth give up meaningful involvement with the church when they grow up. Secularism acquired the truth brand by default because evangelicalism began defining the church's mission as just cultivating faith and not also promoting the knowledge of truth. His observation is this. So Christians, the evangelical version, the type to believe that you have to believe the gospel and believe in Christ, they wanted to be identified as the people of faith. And the secularists are like, that is just fine. You be the people of faith. 
just kind of believe we're going to be the people of truth. And they created this bifurcation, this great division. Friends, that is absolutely not the way it is to be. God has revealed his truth in his word. Truth about God, sin, salvation, purpose, identity, where you came from, creation, origin, the purpose of life. All of this God has revealed in his word. We're not just a people of faith. We are a people of faith in the truth. That's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. We're not just believing whatever. We are believing that which is true. Do you remember when Jesus was on trial? And Pilate came up to him. And remember in John chapter 18, verse 37, he said, So you, speaking to Jesus, so you are a king. And listen to what Jesus answered. You correctly say that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. For what? Listen to this. To testify to the truth. Listen. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We're not just believing whatever. We are believing the truth. And Christ came to testify to the truth. A Christian is a truth teller and one who is believing in the truth about God, about sin, about salvation, about Christ, about why we're here and where we're going. Faith is taking God at his word. And Paul says in verse 13, you retain, live out the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. You see, you and I are to live out the message that we're seeking to give to others. That's what Paul says to Timothy. You heard it from me. You saw it in me. In fact, multiple times as we go through the second Timothy, and as you're reading it multiple times, have you noticed how many times Paul was referencing, you saw this in me, you heard this in me. You see, we are to live out the word. It's to be kind of our way of life. And that's what we have here. What happens is when you and I read the word as Christians, it's kind of like if some of you have tried to raise plants and you're not very good at it, they have a tendency to get dehydrated. What do you do? Well, what you do is you add water to that plant, right? And, and this might help you out here. And all of a sudden, they show a lot of signs of life. Like, your plants may look like that. If you want it to look more like that, you add water. So it is with the Christian. Apart from the truth of Scripture, guess what? We just start wilting away. But you give them the pure milk of the Word, and guess what? Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word, and by it you shall grow in respect to salvation. And that's what God intends. I mean, what the... Infinite, personal, triune God wants is us to experience relationship with Him. To live a Christ-centered life. To have that reflected in our relationships. How we treat our spouse and our kids. How we treat and interface people at work. How we see what we do. Everything about our life. How we respond to trials. When we go through temptation, it's to be integrated with the Word. That's why it says, retain the standard of sound words. You've heard it from me. You've seen it in me. And you do so in the faith just as trusting, believing, and the love which are in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you this, that people who are far from Christ generally do not read the Bible. But they do read Christians. So before I was a Christian, I did not read the Bible. Surprise, surprise. Most non-Christians don't read the Bible. But I'll tell you who I do read. I was reading Christians. How do you live? 
What do you really believe? How does it influence your life? There's a Christian scholar by the name of Larry Taunton. In 2013, he released findings of a nationwide campaign to interview college students who belong to atheistic campus groups. This is fascinating. Listen to this. 2013 research here. And after receiving a flood of inquiries, Larry and his team found some consistent themes among these unbelievers. And what they were looking for, they often expected but did not find more spiritual depth from their Christian neighbors. Okay? These are your local atheists. Listen to some of these things that are written here. Some of these young atheists had gone to church hoping to find answers to tough questions about faith. Others hoped to find answers to the questions of personal significance and purpose and ethics. Serious-minded, they often concluded that the church services were largely shallow, harmless, and ultimately irrelevant. As Ben, an engineering major just down the road at the University of Texas, so bluntly put it, quote, I really started to get bored with church. In contrast, these young atheists expressed their respect for those who took the Bible seriously. Larry writes, quote, Without fail, our former church-attending students expressed positive feelings for those Christians who unashamedly embraced biblical teaching. Michael, a political science major at Dartmouth, told us, Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life, and you would want to change the lives of others. And I haven't seen too much of that. I mean, isn't that interesting? Surprisingly, atheists, they're not looking for Christians to water down their faith to divorce their quote-unquote relationship with Christ from this book. On the other hand, they seem to be looking for wholehearted devotion. They're looking, does anybody actually believe what you say you believe? Is there anybody that's got the guts enough to actually preach what's in this book? Or are we just going to, hey, this is not culturally cool right now, so we're going to back off. We'll throw in a couple of token Bible verses, but we're not going to dive into the Word. Actually, it shows that these, these atheists that were uh, interviewed, when it came to lukewarm Christianity and discipleship, they just find it blah, blah, blah. So what you and I need to do it's like the text says. You want to become confident in Christ? If there's anybody here, and that's your desire. I, I'd like to know whom I have believed. Let me tell you. You want to live out the word. Retain the standard of sound words. Let me give you three questions that I find really helpful just in studying the Bible. Somehow you and I, as believers, we need to learn to feed our souls. And you do that by finding just some time where you worship the word, to be in prayer, and to be in the word. And like I put out this challenge, why don't you read the book repeatedly? Just take the book of 2 Timothy and read it multiple times. I know some of you are doing it because you've already told me. And you're actually like, wow, this book is starting to make sense. Now, let me give you three questions I find really helpful in studying the Bible. Just one question. First one is like, when you're reading this, like, what does this mean? What does this mean that I'm reading? The second question is, why has God had this written? Why did God have this written? And like, what, what, what is this about? Why is it here? Why did you want this recorded? And then the third question is, how should I, re, how should I respond as a Christ-centered believer? You see, what happens is the scriptures point us to Christ, our need for the Savior, life in the Savior. But at the same time, what they do is they also point us out what life in Christ looks like. As those who are filled with the Spirit 
God wants us to live out a transformed life, and He makes it possible through the working of His Spirit. It's interesting, in like John 5.39, Jesus said this, said it to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You read the Bible, he says, because you think that by reading and knowing the Bible, I've got eternal life. Listen to what he says. He says, it is these that testify about me. It's not that I know my Bible. It's that my, I know my Bible and my Bible helps me to know Christ. That's the, how you get to the point. I know whom I have believed. That's why Paul said earlier to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 6, he says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. You see, in God's word, we have all that we need for life and godliness, and he intends for us to engage truth with life. You want to live a life confident in Christ? You live out the word. But I also want to point out the second thing he says in verse 14, and that is you treasure the truth. You live out the word, but you treasure the truth. Look at verse 14. He says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Guard has the idea of like protecting, like from intruders or protecting your possessions from thieves. And oftentimes, the idea, like guards, were kind of rough characters. I mean, like guards today. Don't mess with them. There's a reason they kind of have that, like, look in their face, like, just don't touch who I'm guarding. Because they're trained. They can make your life really miserable. They're like, okay, I don't want to mess with you. I'm going to leave you alone. But that's not how we're to guard the truth. I don't want you to miss this. Because, frankly, if you review church history... Too many times Christians have missed that we're to exemplify faith and love or we're not guarding it like the scripture says through the Holy Spirit. Scriptural truth is protected by spiritual people. We exemplify the fruit of the Spirit. And so he says, I want you to guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the, you see that? The treasure, the good deposit that has been trusted to you. You see, God has given us the gospel and his word, and it's a treasure. It's a good deposit. It's meant to be savored, cared for, and protected. And from the beginning of human history, you know what? The word, the word from God, has always been challenged. You see it here. He says, you are to guard through the Holy Spirit this treasure that has been entrusted to you, You don't have to read the Bible very far until you get to Genesis chapter 3. And with it, you have Satan taking the form of the serpent. And in the midst of all the beauty that God had created, let us make man in our image. And they're enjoying this beautiful relationship, harmony, God and his creation, specifically with humanity. In chapter 3, verse 1, when Satan makes entrance, this is what it says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Indeed, has God said? Has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You see, the very first thing that Satan makes his attack on is, Did God really say that? 
That is always the satanic scheme to break people away from believing, knowing, and trusting the truth of his word. His very first words when he engages humanity is, has God really said that? (laughs) I don't think so. God's holding out on you. And that is the spiritual battle. It's been waged from the very beginning to diminish, to distort, if not to destroy the word that is given to us by God. And yet, you've had the word carried on by sincere believers like Lois and Eunice and, and Paul and Timothy, and it's been passed on to you. You see, we're not to mess with it. We're not to change it. We're not to distort it. We're not to cut out the part like, yeah, I really don't like that, or add to it. I was reading about the Mona Lisa. Uh, it's perhaps maybe the most famous painting out there, Okay. They house it in, in France, in the Louvre, and only there's apparently only two times that it's been moved to be on display someplace else. And it's in a bulletproof case. I mean, you're not going to be able to just kind of walk up and touch that, okay? So you, you see that there? Even if you try to go over the rail, you're going to meet some French policemen, and they're going to help you get on the other side there. You, you cannot touch that. But could you imagine that, let's say it was on one of the two times that it was going to go and be put on display someplace else, but the people that were transporting the, the Mona Lisa are like, you know, this is our chance to make some improvements to this baby. You know, I mean, look at her. Ugh, you know, she's, there is something wrong with that dress there. And we need to fashion that up a little bit here. I think some pink would look good. Look at her hair. Like, how out of date to that? We're going to fix that. And what's wrong with her right hand? Oh, my. We're going to just cut that off, okay? And we're going to put on a new one. I mean, would anybody think, like, Oh, that, that makes sense. You know, like, that would... That, of course that doesn't make sense. You're, you're not supposed to touch that. That's why they're encasing it. They want to keep it exactly the way it is. Right? Friends, that's more... Like, when you come to the Word of God, that idea of, like, changing the Mona Lisa on something that's far more precious, the Gospel and the Word, that's what's actually happening today. There would be an outrage if anybody tore that up cut off her right hand, changed her hairstyle. But where's the outrage today when we take this book and we cut it up, mince it up, or just leave it alone? We are to, like the text says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us this treasure that God has given us, and it's been entrusted to you. You need to understand that false teachings are a huge threat today. I'd like to just share some, just some facts of what's going out there to unsettle you. So December 9, 2009, a poll by the Pew Research Center's Forum on Religion and Public Life found that actually a large number of Americans engage in multiple religious practices, mixing elements of diverse traditions. And get this, many Christians blend Eastern or New Age beliefs such as reincarnation, astrology, the presence of a spiritual energy and physical objects, and they actually blend it. It's like this synchristic, take-what-you-want, eclectic mix of beliefs. So do you know that 22% of Christians believe in reincarnation? If you never read your Bible, well, sure, lots of people believe that. Why not? Do you know that 25% of the public overall believes in astrology? You know, kind of the idea that the position of the stars and planets somehow affect the people's lives. And you hear people think, you know, my lucky stars or the stars are aligned, and that all happens. So do you know 25% of Americans actually believe that? That explains a lot of when you're at the grocery store and you always see these like astrology things. Because people buy that stuff all the time. 
Do you know how many Christians actually believe in astrology? If 25% of Americans do, actually 23% of Christians do. They're just like, oh, everybody else seems to think I'll go with it. And what happens is we are, we see our culture changing. We see morality changing before our very eyes. And so what's happening is we as Christians, we're like, we've got to keep up with the times. And so we are. We're willing to jettison like the book of Genesis. You want to call it a myth or an epic? Go for it. You know, we're not, it's not a big deal. We are in the process of blurring the lines of morality. You want to redefine marriage? Well, I guess it's the loving thing to do, I guess. Yeah, why, well, let, let's go with it. We're in the process of, of ignoring immorality wherever it shows. Heterosexual, homosexual. We're like, yeah, just let people love each other. What they do in their private lives is just private. It, just, it doesn't matter. We're never going to call a sin a sin. We want to take the whole idea of distinctiveness in the roles of sexes, male and female. And right now we're just in the process of blurring the lines. In churches, it's clear that an elder is to be the husband of one wife. We've got a lot of churches like, yeah, you know what? We can have females. They, they can be elders. I, yeah, I know that the Bible said that, and we're going to have to jump over that husband of one wife bit. That is kind of complicated in Titus and First Timothy, and so we do. You're never in the Bible. You can kind of make it up and do whatever you want. And what happens is the whole idea of like the return of Christ is just like, oh, that's just some sort of an unknowable enigma, and we'll just kind of leave it alone. What's taking place now in like most universities, even quote-unquote universities that had a Christian background, the Bible is just put on par with other religious writings. They are scriptural texts, but you can take the Quran and put it next to the Bible, and they're put on equal importance. We are in the process of diluting moral teaching. Um, the social gospel is huge. The idea that the gospel is just really what you want to do is to be a nice person and do some good things. And yet, this text says what? Verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to you. What is taking place is that American Christians are taking the Bible and we're treating it like the playlist on our phone. You like a song? Thumbs up. You don't? Eh, I don't really like that. I don't want to hear any more of that. Thumbs down. And that's what we're doing with Scripture. It's a kind of a build-your-own-religion. And millions. And what's happening is it's sending millions of people to a Christless eternity. Syncretistic spirituality is not biblical Christianity. It is not guarding through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. There are cults that are actually successfully becoming identified as mainstream Christianity. Like, for instance, LDS, Latter-day Saints, Mormonism. There is this huge push, and it has been in our country for years, to just like, well, it's just another denomination of Christianity. And there are a lot of people, Christians, that are confused on that. But do you actually know some of the doctrines that Mormons hold? Let me just give you a few, in case you're not familiar with it. Like Mormons believe that there's more than one God. They believe that Jesus Christ and Lucifer are spirit brothers. Uh, several weeks ago, I had some Mormon elders, they were like 18, visiting my house, and we had a nice little discussion. They did not like the fact that I actually knew. Well, well, and they had to say, yes, they believe that. They believe that God the Father uh, has a body of flesh and bone. They believe that Jesus Christ was born as a result of sexual intercourse between God the Father and Mary. That God the Father was once a man. That we can become gods. If you're a male and you are in tune with LDS doctrine, that you can actually become a god yourself. You like that idea? Sure, that sounds pretty appealing, right? They believe that Jesus Christ was a polygamist and that Mary and Martha were among her wives. 
Does that sound like the book that we call the Bible? Does it? Okay, absolutely not. So what do we do? We guard the word. We're not going to buy it. The Jehovah Witnesses show up. They got their little watchtower or their awake magazine, right? They do not believe that Jesus is God. They say, well, he was the son of God and he's far less than God. And they've got a lot of other beliefs that are so foreign to the scripture. And yet they want to be considered as a a form of Christianity. And so what happens is we've got all sorts of preachers that are just preying upon the unsuspecting. They mix truth, things from the word, with air. They talk about faith, but they treat faith like some sort of magical force. And, and it's kind of like this. We are jettisoning the Bible. There was something that was very profound that took place in our country in 2003. Sixty Episcopal bishops voted to approve the appointment of a guy by the name of Gene Robinson, an openly gay man living with his partner, to become the Bishop of New Hampshire. And he later married his, um, his uh, friend there, his partner, and what wasn't so publicized in 2014 is that he actually divorced his partner. This wasn't working. One of the 60 Episcopal bishops is a guy by the name of Peter James Lee. And this guy said this, and I want you to listen very carefully to the statement he made. Quote, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism, always choose heresy. If it's a choice between creating a division, it's like, no way, we're going to draw the line and we're not... We're not bending. We're not going to capitulate the faith on this. He said, always choose. Choose heresy. Pick that. Unity. Let's all get together. Let's not let doctrine separate us. What we are going to need are Christians who have their head in the game. We are not to distort, dilute, delete, or add to this book. There is the largest oil platform in the world, in the North Atlantic. It's the Hibernia oil platform. And it's kind of fascinating. It's 189 miles east-southeast of St. John's um, in the Newfoundland, Canada area. It took $6 billion to build this thing. And it is anchored to the seabed. So it's 265 feet down, and it is completely anchored, this massive structure. It stands, uh, you know, up there, and it's pretty, pretty significant at 738 feet high. Okay, there's a picture of it. And you've probably, you've probably seen pictures of This is a massive structure. And it's deeply embedded uh, onto the seabed. It actually exists in what is called Iceberg Alley. Okay? So all these icebergs can come and potentially destroy it. Now, when they, when they built it, they were aware, of course, it's an Iceberg Alley. And so they went to some heavy-duty heavy engineering, and they built 16 huge concrete teeth around the Hibernia. Okay? So if an iceberg ever should collide... It should be able to stand and not go anywhere. And they also do this. They, 24-7, they monitor all the icebergs that are floating around. Okay? And what happens is, when they detect an iceberg within 27 miles, they lasso it. This is fascinating. And they tow it away from the platform with these powerful supply ships. Okay? Now, they believe that this platform can withstand a, a million-ton iceberg. And it could even, they believe, withstand a, a hit from a six-million-ton iceberg with repairable damage. But how often do they expect a million-ton iceberg to ever hit it? Once every 500 years. How often a six-million-ton? They say once every 10,000 years. I tell you this because this platform is anchored to the seabed. 
And it's made, it will withstand the hits, but you don't just invite them to come in. And so it is with the church. The church of Christ is solidly anchored in God and His Word. And we're not just like, hey, let's take a free-for-all. Most of the problems within Christianity are within. you got leaders that capitulate the truth. They're like, oh, those things aren't important. And what happens is you have the demise of the church. The church is never meant to be floating, uh, no, no longer moored to God, to Christ and His Word. It's actually to be deeply embedded with it. You see, do you remember how the Bible ends? Do you remember how God ends the Scriptures? Revelation chapter 22, I'll just remind you. Verse 18 and following, this is Jesus. And he said this, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. You add to my book, I will add the plagues. On the other hand, he says, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, like, yeah, that doesn't work for me anymore, I'm just going to ignore it. God will take away his part from the tree of life and the holy city, which are written in this book. And so he says, he who testifies of these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And the book ends. In a Christian culture that acts as if doctrine doesn't matter, God calls out through the scripture and says it absolutely So he says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us this treasure which has been entrusted to you. I'm reading a book called Blaze of Glory. It's a book about the Civil War, the Battle of Shiloh. And um, it's interesting, if you've ever read a book on the Civil War or or you've watched a movie about the Civil War, when, when the flag bearer goes down, someone holding the colors, instantly if someone gets shot down, someone comes back up and picks up that flag and hoists it back up and keeps marching forward. It's kind of like our soldiers at Iwo Jima. There's that picture, and it's very famous, of them raising the flag, never to be taken down. Friends, that's what this scripture calls us to. Confidence in Christ that comes from living out the word and truly treasuring the truth. If you want confidence in Christ, friends, it comes from knowing God and his word. Let's pray. Lord, here we stand. This year, 500 years celebrating a Protestant Reformation with the key words sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Treasure given to you, given to us by you. Lord, if there is someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Christ, the glorious gospel. Would they believe now and just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. I need life. I need you. And I am putting my faith in your son this morning. And Lord, for all of us, we want to grow in confidence in you. And you have given us your word. So help us to integrate it into our lives. Teach us through your spirit. Weave it into the fabric of our being. And we might not only live confidently in you, we might bring you great glory in ways that you have fashioned and asked for in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.